This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Simon Thomas. He first came to prominence in the late 90s when he became a Blue Peter presenter, and he even handed Queen a gold Blue Peter badge. He then went on to work for Sky Sports, presenting the Premier League. Sadly, in late 2017, his wife Gemma suddenly died of a rare blood disease, leaving him and his son Ethan behind. His relationship with alcohol spiralled out of control, but I'm happy to say he is now celebrating over a year of sobriety. I really enjoyed this podcast. I hope you do too. Thanks again for listening to the short ads at the beginning. This helps me to continue to produce the quality content you enjoy. Good morning, Simon. Welcome to my show, One for the Road. And I will say it's a a real joy to have you on today. So thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing all right. We had a bit of a rough night with Talifa, so I've got a six-month-old baby. And she's actually been sleeping a lot better recently, but just had one of those nights. I think she's got a slight coffee thing going on. So it was a bit up and down, so I'm a little bit jaded, but that's that's parenting, mate. Eh? That, that's parenting and nothing compared to when we used to wake up with a hangover, right? So <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it's uh, <laughs> different, isn't it? But, yeah. Um, Anyway, we had a brief chat beforehand, and uh, as I said, the listeners love to hear a bit of backstory. Uh, and we'll get on to your Blue Peter days, um, but what was it like for you growing up as a kid? Do you know, Dave, I think when we look back on our childhoods, not all of us, but often we, we put the old rose-tinted glasses on, and it's like with so much in life, you, you tend to remember for a good reason, the good things, we tend to try and put the, the bad things to the back of the mind. But I can honestly say I had a really, really happy childhood. I grew up in Norfolk till I was 10. So my dad was a vicar. Um, my mum was was home. She wasn't working once once she had us. I had two sisters, still have two sisters, Becky and Hannah, a little bit younger than me. 
Uh, and I just, I just loved being amongst the fields in Norfolk. And then when I was 10, we moved to Surrey. So a very different pace of life. My dad took over a big church in a place called Cheam. Uh, I got launched into public schooling and all that because Vicar's sons at the schools I went to went on the free. So there's no way a vicar can afford public school. So I went there. So, I mean, that was challenging, making the transition from state school in little old Grimston in Norfolk and suddenly being in the rat race of education. But I, I can honestly say I had a really happy childhood. Often people ask me from a faith point of view, did you feel you had to believe because your dad was a vicar? And that's one thing I'll always respect and remember my dad for is that he never put any pressure on us that this is what we believe. So therefore you believe it. It was always up to us. And kind of church life was a big part of, of home life because a lot of my best friends went went there as well. So I can honestly say, you know, every childhood has its challenging moments. Of course it does. But by and large, I can't really look back and go anything other than it was a, it was a happy childhood. Yeah. Um, you don't know this, but um, you say you went to Cheam. I, I grew up in my teens in Sutton. <laughs> I think I remember you saying that on a podcast and I think, yes. Yeah. Good old Sutton, and then next yeah, on is Carshalton yeah. Beaches, yeah, and then Banstead. Bridge, I think, on the train. Yeah, I was at school There's... near Banstead, so I was Burr Heath in oh, Surrey, and then and then Leatherhead for the for public school. Wow, I'm I'm sure we frequented a few uh, drinking holes. Hey, you were a bit younger. Do you remember? Do you remember Alders of Sutton? Yeah, I remember Alders. Yeah. I worked there for six months Did in you? my gap year selling suits. Oh, my <laughs> it's, God. It's long gone. For people who don't know Sutton, they'll think, what is this shop? It was a very old kind of old-fashioned department store, yeah, kind of are yeah. you being served type. And I was, yeah, I was there yeah. for six months. I don't know how I lasted six months because I didn't I enjoy it. I've forgotten all about all this. Yeah, it was on the corner, yeah. wasn't it? Just that's right. where the old bar one is around there. Yeah. So that's, that's um, on it. But I heard um, – one of your podcasts, you were saying that um, a lot of your holidays you used to spend in Cornwall. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether that's an era thing, because we did. We used to fly down the A303 A quite often. Um, Dave, if you are, you are, you're lying. No one ever flies down that A303. Well, no. <laughs> I, know, that, that, I was trying to be positive. It was awful, wasn't it? And, and we would be ripped off by Stone, Stonehenge. That's right. Uh, and Glastonbury and, remember, and all that yeah, area. Yeah. My dad made me um, uh, a little tiny steering wheel and it had an aluminium sort of thing that would go over the passenger seat and I used to pretend to drive down to Cornwall. It was so sweet of him. How long did that amuse you for? Uh, about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Good on your dad for trying, though. Yeah, but, you know, they, they had a kind of old, old. Uh, I'm going to sound really old, you know, you used to go out when it got light and come back when it got dark. And, yeah, I know. You know uh, but it felt good for me as well, you know. I never really had issues with my mum and dad drinking. My dad used to make um, homemade wine, so you didn't know what percentage it was um, they were drinking uh, with the old Demi Johns, and I used to watch the bubble in the thing going up around it. So I never really had a, an experience with my mum and drinking. But I think it's when we moved um, to Carlshorton right, yeah. that um, I went to a, another school and I was petrified. And then, mm. as everyone knows, my mum left and then I started drinking. So for you, where were you uh, in your life when you first experienced alcohol? So my parents weren't and never have been big drinkers. So when my dad passed away, um, getting on for three years ago, but I mean, he liked uh, he liked an ale. Um, he used to have something called Green King out of a tankard on a Sunday lunchtime after church, and he would often go for a pint at Christmas with his brother, uh, my uncle Graham, if they came to stay for Christmas. 
really very, very little memories of alcohol being very prominent in the house. I mean, it's not saying all vicars don't because some do, um, but it's it's not a great mix being a man of the cloth and being a heavy drinker. So I, I think dad had a really, really healthy relationship with alcohol. My mum did as well. So alcohol wasn't really a big part of home life at all. It's not that it wasn't there. It was, but it just wasn't there very frequently. So I didn't grow up surrounded by people who drank very much at all. And I, I can honestly say, and, and mentioning Alders of Sutton throughout that period in my teens, listen, I did what probably most teenagers do. You go to a house party around the age of 15, 16. The mum and dad have just about trusted whoever's party it is to depart the house for two or three hours. Someone eventually finds the parents' drink cupboard and then something horrible like Cinzano is cracked open uh, and you have a few sips. So I do have some memories of going to some house parties where there was alcohol and and trying a little bit, but didn't have a massive interest with it. And I had very little interest in alcohol till university. I, I would go for a drink at a pub with friends. But unlike where I was with alcohol in the years to come, I always had an off switch because it didn't interest me a huge amount. And none of my friends at the time were big drinkers. And then I went to university in Birmingham when I was 19. So I had that gap year, survived orders of Sutton without hitting the drink. And I described it in the book that I wrote a few years back. It was like an alcoholic bomb going off. Um, for anyone who goes to university, who has been to university, you, you will probably think back on that initial week where you ostensibly, unless you're lucky enough to go to university where lots of your friends go, you're amongst totally new people. You think you're mature and old, but actually, if you ever go back to university now and see the students, no disrespect to any students watching or listening to this, but it reminds you of actually how young you are. You really are very, very young, very inexperienced, actually very immature compared mm. to how mature you feel. But there's that need to fit in. And, and I felt like a fish out of water. It's the first time I'd properly lived away from home, like so many who go to university. And everything that surrounds, and I don't know whether this is still the case at universities, but they have that thing called Freshers' Week. And ostensibly what it's about is, is getting students to integrate, to get to know each other, to get to know a little bit about university life, just to help them on that first bit of kind of just integrating into a very different way of life. And most of the exercises at my university in Birmingham back in 1992 revolved around drink. And this was all really, really new to me. Um, I remember the first night at university, our floor tutor, whatever that was, but he was one of the tutors who lived on our floor and um, would look after the kind of pastorally, the two floors um, above and below him. And he invited us around for drinks. And I remember there just being a lot of drink. And I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm not feeling like I fit in. How do I fit in here? What I noticed straight away is everybody else is drinking. And they're also drinking quite a lot at a quite rapid pace. And something in my head said, look, to fit in, join in. Uh, and that's what I mean about that kind of alcoholic bomb going off. Suddenly it's like engaged with something in my brain. I thought this is an easy way to get rid of all those social inhibitions. This is a quite a quick way to get rid of any feeling of awkwardness around new people and worried about, you know, what do they think of me? Do I think I'm a bit square? Am I not going to fit in? It got rid of all of that immediately. And so suddenly they, within kind of days of arriving at Birmingham, something had been kind of switched on in my head to alcohol. Um, and I'd say through university, I was probably like most, most students. I didn't, I, I wasn't absolutely a, a madman on, on alcohol, but it became bit by bit just an increasingly big part of life yeah you were kind of forced into it weren't you i, I can really uh, resonate with that is um where 
with me, I kind of avoided that kind of situation. And then I decided to go into it because mum left and then dad met someone else and that. And then I, I feel like I was lost. So that was the only sort of area I could fit into socially. So how did that go? Like three years at uni, did that just, was that a drinking fest throughout or did it calm down? No, I, I, I'd say it was steady throughout university. I've always been, which has probably served me quite well in terms of career and life, but I've always been quite quite a conscientious person when it comes to work. So I, I didn't want to be one of those people who'd get to the end of the year and get to your finals and you've, you've literally done no, I've studied history. It's not been much use for anything in my life, but I enjoyed the three years. But I didn't want to get to kind of exams, having done no work and missed endless lectures because it could have hangovers. And I also couldn't afford it. You know, I didn't. I didn't go to university with huge amounts of money. Listen, myself and my my housemate and my initial roommate in Halls, Andy, uh, introduced me to the world of cheap Tesco vodka and things. You do that thing, which some people listening will will know what I mean, preloading, where you're going on a night out. You're not going to be able to afford to buy drinks throughout the night. You're a student. You haven't got much money. So what do you do? You go down to Tesco's. You get yourself a very cheap bottle of Tesco's own vodka, uh, and you have a couple of quite large measures each before you go out. So you're kind of on the way. So you don't, you're going to need less when you go out. So that was the kind of pattern. Yeah, there were quite a few hangovers along the way. But I don't think it was something that in any way made university a massively negative experience or had a massive impact on on my work or getting the degree I got. So I think I think I had a typically student relationship with alcohol. I wasn't absolute hell for leather, but I wasn't abstaining either. So you went to university and did a degree in history. Yeah. Uh, what got you into telly? So that was while I was at university, which is probably helping that I'm not spending my whole of my university career drinking, is that there was, listen, university have lots of different societies, whether they're sporting ones, might have a photography society, whatever it might be. But there was one called Guild TV. And the University of Birmingham had their very own television station that used to go out on very small, this is the days before widescreen TVs on small little portable televisions in all the bars in the university. Literally, they've no one watched it. It was kind of on mute, but it was there. And I went to see them in the first week of university when you had at the Freshers Week, the kind of society fair in the Guild of Students. And I thought this looks really interesting. And I had a passing interest in broadcasting when I watched Blue Peter as a kid I thought god that would be just amazing to work on but nothing ever more than that and I started doing eventually a program on this university tv station called Guild TV called The Lunchbox it was just a Friday morning magazine show around about lunchtime nobody as I said watched it um, but it was fun and all the equipment they got from an old BBC studios that have long gone but where all of BBC daytime used to come from in Birmingham called Pebble Mill Oh, they got yeah. lots of second. You remember it, don't you? People of a certain era go, yeah, I remember yeah. Pebble Mill. Yeah. And it got loads of second-hand equipment from them. So it built a proper studio, they had a proper gallery. So in terms of the raw things you need to produce a live TV show, it was all there. And I, I just really, really enjoyed it. I didn't really mind that no one actually watched it. And so I got a real bug for it. And I remember the last ever show I did ahead of graduating in 95, and there was a girl who worked as a producer at the station and she came up to me after the final show and said what are you going to do next and i said i think i'm going to go for broadcasting i think i'm going to go for blue peter and she says you've got to do it you've got to do it you've got something you've got to go for it and and that was the kind of the light bulb moment where for the previous year i'd gone around the careers fairs i'd gone for a john lewis interview i don't know why i did that for their graduate training scheme i even found myself down in hendon in north london 
doing the Metropolitan Police Graduate Trainee Selection Day. Thankfully, I got kicked out because I failed the medical. That's a whole nother story. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do until that moment. And that's the moment I thought, right, this is the dream I'm going to chase. Gave myself three years to make it. And in the end, it took the best part of four years. And you've got that gig, which is like everyone knows Blue Peter. I'm sure they do at any era. What was that like, um, getting that job? It was the most, the night I got it was the most surreal experience of my life, without a doubt, because you've, you've dreamt about getting this job. I remember the moment I, I walked out, and I, and I got the job in very unusual circumstances. I tried twice for the program, got nowhere, got the letter back that said, thanks for your interest, we'll keep your details on file. Anybody knows those kind of letters, knows that's a polite way of saying no thank you. So I got nowhere. I'd done an audition at Children's BBC, but didn't get a job in the broom cupboard, as it was known at the time. So I'd kind of given up. I thought this is probably not going to happen. And I was over my three years I'd given myself to make it. And then Richard Bacon gets sacked. And if mm. people don't know the story of Richard, Richard had been a presenter on the show for around about two years. And he got caught taking um, illegal drugs on a night out and dobbed into the needs of the world by his best friends. So the ultimate betrayal. And they were left with no other choice, but they had to they had to sack Richard. Um, and so there was an opening and I waited a couple of weeks before getting in touch. And and it all happened from there. So I got the job in very unusual circumstances. But I remember just walking out of the head of Children's BBC office on a Monday night when I'd just been given the job. And you walk past this notice board and on it were. So I was presenter number 27 were the other 26 presenters. So all the ones that I've watched when I was a kid from, you know, John Noakes and Peter Purvis through to Simon Groom to Sarah Green to um, Peter Duncan, John Leslie, they're all there. And and you just look at it and go, I have just joined probably the most exclusive club in in the UK. There's only 26 members before me on the 27th. It was, and I wasn't allowed to tell anyone for three weeks apart from very close family because yeah. of the interest around who was going to take over from Richard. That's an amazing story, honestly. Um, and what was your drinking like then? Was it under control? It wasn't really an issue back then in your life? Was that 1999? Yeah, 1999. So I was a good four years on from leaving university. And I'd, I'd say my drinking was probably whatever normal is for a, for a 20-something man living in London. Um, it was a part of nights out, but it wasn't it wasn't a be-all and end-all. And when I got onto Blue Peter, no, nothing really changed on that front. I, but I think as time went on, what began to change, and I think began to then sow the seeds of what, as I know we'll come on to talk about, became a much, much bigger problem and a far darker problem in terms of my relationship with alcohol, was that I, I found being famous uncomfortable. Now, people are probably going to say, well, why on earth do you pick a job like that? I wanted that job because I love broadcasting. I love the, the medium of communication. And I love that job because it, it opens you up to just some incredible experiences, traveling the world. I was very untraveled before that job. My parents couldn't afford to take us abroad on holidays. So, you know, to get to visit 25 countries, to chuck yourself out of airplanes, to climb mountains, you know, you name it on that show, you've got to do it. So it was way more than being famous. It was about the whole experience. And I was probably interested in the fame factor for around about six months. It was quite novel, suddenly people knowing you. I remember the day after my first show in January 1999, I, I made my kind of first appearance on a Friday night. And I went the next day to the West End in London with my sister and a friend of mine from the university called Mick. And we walked into a McDonald's, the busy one on Oxford Circus. And a group of girls came up to me and said, are you the new guy in Blue Peter? And it was like, 
this is so weird. And this was pre-selfie era days. So it's, it was back, it was signing napkins. Autograph, yeah. <laughs> yeah. On a napkin. I thought, goodness me, I've made it. But once that novelty had gone, I just, I didn't find fame and, and people knowing you sat all that comfortably because I think the problem I had is that in my head, I'd created this narrative is that I'm this guy on the telly. And because I do what I do, because I'm on Blue Peter, whenever I meet people in a social setting, they are surely going to have expectations of who I am based on the person they see on the telly. And what if the person they see on the telly doesn't quite match up to the person they're meeting at this social event? And so it began to sit really uncomfortable with me. And so as time went on through that period of six years on Blue Peter, alcohol became my kind of mask. We all use masks in life. You know, we do. But alcohol is a really, really big one. And I found that in social situations where I would be worrying about what people might think about me, that by having a few drinks, that would pull down the mask and I could be that person I felt they wanted me to be. Uh, And that's, I think, where the kind of seeds of that more destructive relationship began. Was there any part of that, though, that you um, were mindful or conscious of what happened to Richard Bacon? Like, being dobbed out on his night out and you were presenter of Blue Peter and you you might be out on the lash or something and Yeah, it was a very different era, Dave, to what it what it is now. I mean I mean Richard's story was very, very I don't know the best word to use is, but but quite unique in that that it was a set up phone call between his friend and the news of the world to record Richard essentially reminiscing about a night out where he mentioned what they'd been taking. Nowadays that moment at that nightclub probably would have been caught on someone's camera or someone would have taken a photo of it. When I joined Blue Peter in 1999, I mean, there were mobile phones, but they were still Billy Basic. You could ostensibly text on them, make a call, of course, and probably play snakes. And, and that was it. And I remember, and I think, I think it was 2001, 2002, we did a, a couple of weeks filming in Japan. And we spent a lot of time in Tokyo. And if you've ever been to Japan, if anyone listening or watching has been to Japan, if you go into Tokyo in particular, they've got like a, a whole Oxford street of electrical department stores. Just it's a technology fest. And it's almost a window into what you'll be seeing here in the UK, probably in around about six months years time. So we went to Japan and we were looking around and people had these phones with cameras on. Wow. And we found out more about them. We were like, we were absolutely stunned that, that in a few months time in the UK, we might be able to take a photo on our mobile phone and text it to a friend. So in that era that I was on it, that kind of technology, social media didn't exist like it does now. It, it, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram, there was no TikTok, and there was Facebook was very, in its very, very early stages. There was none of this. So it wasn't that we could go out and go hell for leather and just be idiots because we weren't, because there'll always be potentially the paparazzi around. But it did mean you had certainly more privacy than you, you would have now. I, I think... If we were presenting in that era with the technology we have now, I think we'd have been a lot, lot more wary about what we did and where we went. And I'm really not saying we were, you know, absolute party, you know, people ripping it up left, right and centre. But we had the, the ability to be able to go out as a four, you know, at Christmas time, myself, Liz Barker, Connie Hucker, Matt Baker, and just have a beer in the pub. And no one, you know, nothing, nothing said about it because no one sat there with their phone going, oh, look, there's the Blue Peter crew, and then putting it up on social media. I was on a train the other day and I didn't know whether they was actually taking a picture of me or watching something. Do you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's yeah. so intrusive. 
Uh, I've met Matt Baker. He's a really nice guy, actually. He's a top guy. Yeah. 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 We, um, we had a lot of fun times and they did include alcohol at times, but you've got to let your hair down. But we lived in a very, very different era. Yeah, we did. Where we had privacy. That makes me feel a bit sad because I, I, you know, I grew up in that era. I remember when the first phone came out, the Panasonic one with a handle and a big battery pack. And things were so different then, you know, like every, yeah. you, you could be out, someone would take a picture now and it could be online within five minutes. That's the thing yeah. these days. Yeah. So, um, well, and and so back I, then, you know, if people didn't like something on the show, they would have to go to the, the effort of either writing a letter in, which some did, or, or emailing. Now, yeah, yeah. when I do the football, it's like an instant point of view because people on Twitter, if they don't like something about the way you've represented their team, will tell you. And they can do it immediately. If you make a mistake on air, as I have done, we're all human. Someone will record that very, very quickly. And it will be on social media within minutes, gaining its own momentum. So it's just an entirely different world. Moving on then, at what point did alcohol become a real issue for you? Where you really knew something was different? I think my unhealthy relationship with alcohol was was probably what you describe as a slow burner through till about 2017. It was always there. There were times when I would quit for, for six months. I nearly quit for a year once, didn't quite make it to a year. But I knew it was a problem. I think when I realized it was a problem, and this was during my first marriage to my first wife, Gemma, it's when the secret drinking began to come in. And, and that is the, the need after a day at work to unwind with a drink. And if Gemma wasn't around that evening. I was coming back from work late or I had a night where she was out or weekend when she was away. I would often drink on my own. Mm. And I, I never think that's a very good sign uh, mm. when you begin to drink on your own. And I think when secrecy begins to creep in where, you know, your other half is not going to be entirely comfortable with the fact that you've just nailed a bottle of wine on your own. You, you start to hide things. You start to try and cover your tracks. You begin the pattern of lying you know now that i don't drink and you you'll know this mate you can you can smell alcohol on someone's breath a mile off your senses are just far more tuned into it because yeah. it's not something that's part of your life and so you look back and think all those times i said i hadn't had a drink and then when you smell it on people you think how on earth did i ever kid myself into thinking it's a bit like when we're young and we try a cigarette for the first time and then yeah. our parents go have you been smoking yeah no, no not at all and you're just chewing a bit of wrigley's chewing gum this yeah. never going to cover the smell, but we kid ourselves in thinking it will. And I, I'd got to that stage of thinking I could kid her and kid others that I hadn't had a drink. But you're kidding yourself as well, aren't you? Because like yeah. it's that secret drinking. You know, I recorded a podcast with um, a couple yesterday talking about my solitary drinking and how that began. And that began because I realised people started commenting in the pub about I was always pissed. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I started to get a few takeouts from the office over the road and go home and then thought, actually, I can actually get pissed without anyone noticing, yeah. you know, yeah. and the free pouring of the vodka and uh, emptying the cans into the, the bin with bags around them. So no one was seeing me. And, right. and, and it's almost like you're having an affair, like you've got a mistress because it's so secretive. And you're ashamed of yourself as well, aren't you? After you're like, yeah. what, what have I become that I'm yeah. secretly? And, and the whole thing that you think they don't know you've been drinking. Oh, I'm tired. I've had a, I'm, I've had a, a, a long day. I'm tired when you're slurring. You know what I mean? Why are you, being, why are you being sick the next morning? Oh, it must have been something I ate. You know, I, I haven't been sick for a year and a half because I haven't had alcohol. 
you know, I wasn't sick loads, but I, when I did get a bad hangover, I would be sick. And I haven't been sick since I stopped. There's no, it's no coincidence, but all those times, why have you just, why have you, oh, I wasn't, I was coughing. You know, we just invent all these cover ups that mm. when you look back on them, they're, they're, I mean, they're not laughable because that's probably the wrong word, but it's, it's amazing to think we thought we were kidding people. And I so recognize that, that thing about, you know, the Diet Coke can, that as, as time went on became my thing in that, I can pop a bit of something in the Diet Coke can and everyone yeah. just thinks I'm drinking Diet Coke. And then I totally hear you on that kind of then hiding the evidence in terms of I didn't want someone to pick up the can and smell it and go, that's not Diet Coke. It's or else even worse, drink it. I mean, Ethan was how old then? Eight or something? Imagine that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's oh, that yeah. kind of thing that you don't think about at the time. Uh, and and bottles were found that I didn't even know they were there because I was so drunk. I I was putting them in ridiculous places. I, I was putting football socks over bottles. I mean, it was the shape of a bottle with a sock over it. Do you know what I mean? It was just ridiculous. But it goes to show where I was in my mindset. But, mate, 2017 was a difficult year, wasn't it? Do you mind covering what happened there? Yeah, so I, at the time, I'm, I've am i been at Sky Sports for... Um, 12, 12 and a bit years. Uh, that was my next job after leaving Blue Peter. I wanted to become a sports presenter. So I've been, been at Sky for over a decade and had worked my way up through Sky Sports News to doing the Football League and eventually got to the Premier League, which had always been my dream job once I left Blue Peter. And I've been doing that for around about a season and a half. And then I, in the autumn of 2017, started having some really bad mental health problems that kind of came out of the blue. Um, a lot of anxiety around working started to get panic attacks before I went on air. So it was a really, really difficult time already. And I came away from Sky for a bit. They took me out of the limelight and gave me some time off to get better and get myself back in a mentally strong place where I could still do my job because it had become almost impossible to do your job. And then in, in amongst that, um, my first wife, Gemma, who I'd been married to since 2005, began to complain of these headaches and to cut a long, really sad story short, she ended up getting a lot of fatigue. There were bruises that wouldn't go. And her health declined really, really rapidly. Um, we had a number of trips to the doctors who, sadly, for lots of different reasons, didn't pick up on what was going on. And she was diagnosed on a Tuesday morning, very early hours in the morning in Reading, where we lived at the time, with a blood cancer. They didn't know what sort, but that's why she was fatigued. And that's why she was feeling so actually horrendous. And then the next day, she was diagnosed with a very rare form of blood cancer called acute myeloid leukemia but it's a very aggressive and rapidly developing cancer so in the aftermath of everything i spoke to a consultant said probably would have only had it for three to four weeks but if it's not treated quickly it's devastating as we found out and by yeah friday morning in that november of 2017 she she had very sadly gone and she was only 40 being a picture of health when she celebrated her 40th birthday the year before. We had one uh, boy called Ethan, so he was eight at the time. So you are plunged into this horrific, horrible world of, of grief um, where the very foundations of your life are rocking. feels like everything that felt as certain as it can do in life is crumbling around you. I describe it as like being hit by a life tsunami. And as that wave of, of loss rushes through it, it feels like it destroys everything. And all that was kind of left standing come the end of it is myself and Ethan and then family and friends. So yeah, it was a, it was brutal, devastating, yeah, horrendous period of life. I can't even imagine, uh, to be honest, mate, how that must have been for you. And, and you still got to be there for Ethan. 
yourself in a way, you know, and, and did you drink during that experience? Well, this is the, the strange thing when I look back on it. I'd actually taken the decision in August of that 2017 to stop. Uh, I'd been thinking about it and talking about it with a friend for a while. And it had become a problem in my first marriage. Uh, I think Gemma had become increasingly frustrated, upset uh, about my relationship with alcohol, not all of which I knew about at the time. Uh, more and more friends had got worried. And I just felt enough was enough. I think, as probably we'll talk about, I was doing it more for them than I was me. Yeah. But I hadn't drunk, and I didn't drink through that mental health spell that I had in the September, October, and into November. And I didn't touch a drop for the first three weeks after she went. It just actually never occurred to me. But I think probably what it was is that when something like this happens, it's not the same for everybody, because sadly, just through my experience of speaking to people, some people lose people and they're very very lonely they don't have support networks around and they don't necessarily have lots of family and friends to support them i did so i was very very fortunate and very blessed to have such a big support network and there is that inevitable unwanted but inevitable momentum that happens after someone goes there's all the administrative things you've got to do and then there's the planning of a funeral and that has its own momentum if you want it to be the funeral service that reflects the person who's gone you've got to be involved and so there wasn't really time to let the gravity of what had happened really hit. I mean, yeah, it was incredibly painful. My emotions all over the place, a lot of feeling of numb, but also that feeling of denial that people will get who go through grief. But I think it's when the funeral came and went, that's when the true gravity of what's happened has hit you. Because lots of your friends and family will have to go back to their lives. Um, mm. They've got work to do. They've got families to raise. And it's not like they've forgotten you, but they've got to get on. And, and you feel like you've just been left I and mean, I wasn't completely left of course I wasn't but then the true grim reality of, of life going forward hits you that this is for real the big crowds of people around you on the day of the funeral are now gone this is life what are you going to do with it and I remember distinctly I think it was the Thursday after the funeral and I hadn't thought about it until this point. So I went through to the kitchen and I can't remember to this day who was there. I think my sister was there and maybe some of Gemma's family. And it was the evening time in, in December, just before Christmas. I went, I literally just went to the kitchen to get a drink, I think of Ribena or something. And I went to open the, the sort of cupboard where the Ribena was. And there is quite a large bottle of, of gin, a little bit drunk from it. And I just looked at it. And by this point, I'm fed up with the pain. I'm fed up with the fact that as an adult, I can't escape from the myriad of questions you have about what on earth happens next. What are you going to do about work? If you don't go back to work, how do you pay the bills? How are you going to get Ethan through this? How are you going to navigate him through the loss of his mum? What does this mean for your identity now as a, as a 40-something man now that this has happened? And these questions, they do not relent. They are utterly relentless. They come at you time and time again. And I just wanted a break from it. So I saw this bottle of gin and that's when it began. I began looking around and I could see in the reflection of the kitchen window that people were still sat in the lounge that sits next door. And it was such a, it was such a quick thing. I just went, do you know what? That little voice in your head goes, come on, you deserve this. You, you've been through hell. You're going through hell. You're going to need all the help you can get. This will help. And just very nonchalantly, forward. I mean, it's a vile drink, by the way. I don't ever recommend this to anyone who still drinks, even in a moderate measure. I just put quite a lot of gin into a glass, bought some Ribena in and potted back to the lounge. Now, for somebody who hadn't drunk since August, 
that was a pretty strong entry point back into the world of alcohol. And and that became my pattern of behavior then for the next, certainly the next year at a really serious level and probably beyond that as well, where a lot of it was in secret. A lot of it was looking around to check no one was looking. A lot of it was in glasses or cans where people wouldn't guess. And it was amazing, but also horrible how quickly I descended from that moment in the kitchen on that Thursday night to a place of just extraordinary darkness, not just that night, but for many, many months to come. It's really interesting you say that because um, as a coach, I have quite a lot of people that come back to me and, and they have a few months off or a few weeks and they decide that actually they've cracked it and they can um, go down the moderation route because they've seen the error of their ways and, and they feel like they can. And they try, they scratch the itch um, and within a couple of weeks they're back to where they were and in fact a lot of the time it's worse yeah because they've seen what life looks like without it you know and i always say to people you know maybe that first time to apprenticeship you know that's the learning curve so many people want to scratch the itch and you can spend hours with them and they still want to scratch the itch so that went on for a year or so what point did you get to where you just was, I'm sick to death for this now? Well, I tried lots of different things. I mean, my friend, understandably, became increasingly worried about it. With that first Christmas with my sisters, I still feel uh, a sense of guilt about it because it, it began to spiral out of control. I was working out constantly throughout that Christmas in Norfolk, ways in which I could get to the co-op and squirrel away a bottle of vodka to bring it back and where would I hide it this time because they'd already cottoned on to the fact I was drinking again so they were getting really really worried and I was encouraged in early 2018 when friends were getting really really concerned and there was there's a duty of care concern here because as an eight-year-old boy and you know I do feel increasingly like I'm being released from that sense of shame when I look back but I do feel that sense of guilt and shame about what I was doing while an eight-year-old boy is sleeping upstairs but I eventually agreed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think I went for around about four or five months. And I think AA is amazing. Well, you know, what they do for men and women um, is incredible. And it continues to be incredible. But it's not for everyone. Uh, and I don't think it was for me for a couple of reasons, though. And I just want to say this right at the start. I do not say this in any way, shape or form as a criticism of AA. Because as I said, they are brilliant. But it's like with you know, mental health problems for medicine is not for everybody. Counseling is not for everybody. We all find different paths to mm. healing and to recovery. It's the same with alcohol. And so I went for a few months. There's one in Henley. Um, and I think the two things I struggle with, one is the reason why I was there is there was an unfixable problem here. And that was my first wife was dead and nothing was going to change that. Alcoholics Anonymous was not going to change that. That I felt was the root cause of the place I now found myself in, in terms of my relationship with alcohol. And the second thing that, that troubled me, I, I didn't have a problem. It's a bit awkward at first, but when you go around an AA meeting, one of the things you have to say before you say anything is I'm, and you say your name, I'm Simon and I'm alcoholic. And they have their reasons for doing that. I didn't have a problem doing that. What, what I came away with often feeling is that there was not a sense of, from a lot of people of freedom. There was a sense in which we're doing this because we know we need to. 
a lot of people talking about I wouldn't still be here today if I hadn't found AA or I wouldn't still be in a job that I am if I hadn't found AA. I still wouldn't be with my wife or husband or have a good relationship with my kids had I not found AA. That's why it's so, so valuable what it does. But a lot of people, and maybe it was just the group I was part of, that didn't feel a sense of freedom, that, that alcohol hadn't given them a sense of freedom, almost just a sense of like, oh, we've got to do this because it's for the best. So it just didn't work for me for those two reasons. So I kind of stepped away from it. And I had spells where it, it would get better for a while. But it was always the same pattern. When I was feeling pain at its worst, it was the initial number. So it would take away the pain fairly rapidly. And my go-to was 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 vodka because it's quick and you could hide it in a dark Coke can. And you, you said something earlier, which sent a bit of a shudder down my spine, Dave, when you said about, yeah, you know, you've got kids they maybe pick the drink up and i remember one night and this is where that shame comes in of ethan coming up to me in the lounge and i've got my first one of the evening on the go and he says, oh can i have a bit of your dark coke dad i was about to say yes and i remember what was in it i'm like no 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 and i think he's nine by this point he's thinking why are you why are you behaving like what what it's don't be dark coke dad i oh, know no no but it's not good for you but you've let me drink it before and you already you're thinking hang on who's been the child i feel like i'm the child and he's the adult in this situation and that that pattern of whenever stressful things hit, things I couldn't manage mentally hit, it was all too often my go-to thing. I, and I don't know if you saw the post I put up the other week. This was a really sobering moment, but actually also an encouraging moment. I didn't know we had Deliveroo around where I live now. So I live with my wife, Darina, and Talitha and Ethan here in Cheshire and Buckinghamshire. I didn't think we had Deliveroo, but it turns out it's just come to the area recently. And I hadn't been on Deliveroo since... I don't know, it was about two, two and a half years ago. So we went to order a meal the other Friday night. And so I, I downloaded the app again, put in my, my login details. And I thought, well, just have a look at what was the last thing I ordered on, on Deliveroo. And honestly, as I sort of scanned down all the orders, they were nearly all alcohol because something I'd discovered when I was worried about would I get spotted going into co-op down the road again by someone? Would there be a friend in there at the till as I walked up asking for a litre of vodka? I discovered that people will drop it at your door. And so that was my thing. And this was like a historical record of just how bad it got. How often when I was struggling, I'd be on Deliveroo and whatever's available, whoever was quickest, that's what would arrive at the door 10, 15 minutes later. So at time got it got appalling. It it led me to the precipice at least a couple of times because it it switches off the pain initially, and then it feels like you're a skier heading down a a run you can't handle, and you descend into a, a far darker place than the one you started at. And then all the things you were struggling with the day before, when you wake up the next morning, it's like someone's amplified them by about eighty percent. Yeah, I recorded an episode with Stacey Hill, um, and she won't mind me saying this, that unfortunately um, her lovely husband died and her friends used to drop booze off and leave it in her porch because they it was a done thing, you know, I'll oh, have a drink, it'll help you forget. But what happened was she'd have a drink and then wake up at three in the morning and, as you say, amplified, it's like someone turning the radio up with your worst song on 10 times of volume and and you know it's just an instant fix that doesn't last long and then after a while they started to notice that she was drinking more and then said are, are you developing a problem with drink when they they were enabling but a lot of people don't know what to do and i really relate to what you say about um the funeral 
that when my mum died, I was with her throughout the whole process. Um, she had a hospital bed in the flat and I was with her every day holding her hand. And I remember the day she died was awful, but there was a sense of relief as well because I was with her and I told her I loved her and I was holding her hand. But when that coffin was in the hearse and, and she was cremated, it was after that that, as you say, everything goes back to normal. The phone stops ringing, the text stops coming, and you think, fuck, I'm on my own now. And that's when I really, really started to, to uh, ramp up the drinking. Thank you so much for sharing that as well, Simon. I know, I know it's a, a difficult conversation, but I think it really helps people understand, you know, how we use alcohol as a coping strategy in the worst of scenarios. And but, so when you decided to stop, I mean, I think it sounds like before that you were kind of doing it for other people, but we all know now we can do it because it'll improve other people's lives, but we need to be the best version of us for it to work right. Yeah. And I was the worst version of me when I was drinking. And I soon realized within a couple of weeks of stopping drinking that things were better. My mental health was better. My anxiety was, my mood swings stopped. I was more positive in my life in, in that shorter period, you know, um, was this like that for you? Did you realize that um, this time around you, you had, this had to be for you? Yes. Because when I look back on previous attempts to give up like that one in 2017 and, and the one two or three years before, if you are doing it partly because you want to keep your other half happy or you want to keep your friends less worried and stuff, you will never truly sit at peace with the decision you've made. And so on all those occasions that I gave up, what it would mean is because I hadn't truly made it for me, it was partly for other people as well. It meant that when those social occasions came round where you'd want to have a drink, you feel a, a level of begrudgment and just mm. being annoyed at the fact that you weren't going to be drinking and it might lead to an argument with the other half. And they'd say, well, you can drive because you don't drink anymore. And then you'd get annoyed about that. It, it just used to jar not being able to drink and i think when i look back on it now i'm not surprised because in my head i haven't really done this for myself i've done it because i'm just trying to keep the peace and this is the best yeah. way but actually i'd far rather be having a drink with you guys and not denying myself something that i still find very very enjoyable i think the difference was this time and and when you talk about that that kind of best version of yourself it was a, a friend of mine called carl beach who i've known for years uh he's such a good good man, good friend. And, and he's been kind of exploring this, this whole sober lifestyle for a while with different people within the world in which he works. And he took the decision over 18 months ago to go sober. Now, Carl really doesn't have, I would say, uh, a really unhealthy or ever has done relationship with alcohol. But he just kept saying this phrase as we kind of talked it through uh, towards the end of the year before last about being that best version of yourself. And it's a phrase that really, really stuck with me as I began to think through. So my relationship with alcohol probably in the year before finally giving up was it was far less like it was back then. But all too often when stressful events did hit, my go to thing would be to drink and it just exacerbates everything. It turns a really stressful situation into something even more stressful than it was in the first place. So I knew that this, this just wasn't going to work long term. I don't think it would have. It was definitely not helping my marriage to Dorina. It's not helping me be a good parent to Ethan. Taliban arrived at this point. But that phrase, being the best version of yourself, stuck with me. And so on the, the 3rd of January last year, 2022, I just thought, 
I do want to be the best version of myself. I want to be the best possible husband I can be. I want to be the best possible dad I can be. At this point, we don't know that Talitha is going to be coming um, towards the end of the year. I want to be the best I can be at the job I do. I want to be the best friend I possibly can be. I know that for me, because of my relationship with alcohol over the years, I cannot be any of those things with alcohol still in my bloodstream. And I just thought, I'm done. And the difference this time has, has been, unlike how I felt at those AA meetings back in 2018, has been liberating. It's, it's just been such a, a liberating experience where there's no, there's no sense of bitterness that I've had to do this. There's not that begrudgment when you're around people who are drinking. I've been to at least three weddings since I stopped drinking and I've enjoyed every single one of them for different reasons, but never once have I sat there going, oh, flipping it. I'm the one not drinking. It, it, it health benefits, you know, skin, does your skin the world of wonders, but mentally, you know, when people say to me, you know, what, what, what's your piece of advice is, and one of the things I will say is that, it doesn't make your problems disappear. You know, you know this. Life's problems don't suddenly evaporate. What I always say is it, it gives you the best chance of facing those problems uh, and sorting them out. Alcohol does exactly the opposite. It gives you the least chance of sorting those problems out. If you're involved in a really difficult situation right now, adding alcohol into the mix will make it 10 times more difficult. If you are going through the horrible, lonely, difficult journey of grief right now, I can promise you, and I totally understand why you maybe are drinking or attempted to drink, it will make everything you're feeling a hundred times worse. Yeah. It's just been, it's been liberating, mate. And and I, I, I love life now in a way that I don't think I really did when alcohol was part of the equation. Yeah, because you didn't love you, mate. That's the big no. thing. You know, like I quite often ask people that come to me, how do you feel about yourself? And there's always a pause and there's always tears. Yeah. Because when they get confronted with that question, it makes them think, actually, I, I really don't like myself. I'm always putting myself last, right? Because I'm a people pleaser and I over people please. So it takes it away from what I'm doing, my drinking, you know? Um, and, and when you do it the way you, you've done it, I've done it. Um, you can work on your self esteem. Becoming a better version of yourself means you spend time with yourself, with your thoughts. And, it, you know, I, I look at it as a journey of discovery rather than recovery. Because when I was, um, I agree with you with AA. You know, I know many, many people that swear by it daily and it works for them. I went to AA for about three months and I, it felt a little bit restrictive for who I am as a person. Mike. Yeah. So, I didn't want it to define me for the rest of my life of keep getting up in the middle and saying, my name's Dave, I'm an alcoholic. So I went on my own way and I look at it like I'm learning about life. I'm learning about myself. The journey of discovery feels a lot more fresher for me, more positive. And that's how I, I look at life. Um, you gave up January last year. Um, and then later on in the year, you had a third child with Darina, right? Is that correct? Well, I'll, I'll, my second child and my first first one with Darina, yeah, Talitha. Yeah. She was, yeah, born unexpectedly early. Yeah, she was eight weeks premature. Darina just fell. So she was due at the end of November um, 2022. And then early October, Darina just started feeling really, really ill. And we ended up having to go to... The hospital on a Monday night and by Tuesday lunchtime they're saying 
we need to get the baby out. I mean, they, there was serious threat to both of them. So we ended up, you know, being in My the world. My point there, Simon, yeah. is that if you hadn't given up drinking, there's a chance you might have had a few that evening. You wouldn't have been present. You know, can 100%. you imagine? Yeah, I remember thinking that on the drive to Stoke Mandeville Hospital, it's around about 20 minutes from where we are. I thought, crikey, back in the day, I might well have had a drink. I might well have not been in the in the state of mind and body where I could have driven Doreen's hospital. How embarrassing and bad would that have been? And actually dealing with all the stress of that next 24 hours and then the next three weeks, because Talitha was in, was in NICU for three weeks. I mean, she was expected to be five to six weeks, so she did amazingly. You know, so strong and a real fighter. But it was a really stressful period, particularly for Doreen. It's not how you expect, you know, life with your child to begin. You expect them to be born. Yes, it's probably going to be quite uncomfortable. And then you you make the journey home, both of you. But but to be coming home without her for the first three weeks was incredibly hard. And I think back in the day, on, on the nights that Doreen was staying in hospital with her, I'd have probably thought I deserve a drink here. Yeah. Um, but it never, never crossed my mind once. It's so fascinating. And I imagine as well, um, when she fell ill, um, there were memories of Gemma and you did, there could be a chance you were thinking that this could go wrong, you know, and you drink off the back of all those feelings as well. Cause mm. it just draws you in all the time. It's almost yeah. like any situation. I need a drink. I need a drink. But when you yeah. don't drink, you, th- you think, right, I need to be on top of my game here. And you are already yeah. on top of your game by not drinking. So it's yeah, that double-edged exactly. sword, isn't it? And, yeah, and you yeah. know, I, I don't want to bash on to people about, oh, my God, look at my, my skin and my eyes are so white. It's true. But do you know what? Um, it's times like these that you really being present for your loved ones, but for yourself as well, because you've been through such a lot as well. Mm. To go through that on your with the baby and whatever was traumatic for you again. Um, and you were probably more able to manage your feelings. Yeah, 100%. And and I think that phrase you just used there, Dave, being present is such an important one, even even away from the world of alcohol. You know, we mm-hmm. have so many distractions in life now, not least technology, um, where sometimes we're, we're not truly present. I often always find it baffling, but I also understand it when you see people at a concert and they're all filming what they're watching with their own eyes on their phones. And you think, why? Just be yeah. present. Yeah, drinking in real life what you're seeing and yeah. and so often with alcohol it, it it denied you that opportunity to be present because your head was somewhere else it was in the land of intoxication and i love that being present now you know feeling really engaged and you know i think when you go through loss when you go through really challenging times in life and you come through the other side it it, it will inevitably make you appreciate life in probably a different way than you you felt before and i think then on top of that taking alcohol out of the equation has meant that yeah life hasn't hasn't suddenly got easier but taking alcohol away makes life a lot easier to manage when those tests come and and it and it does allow you to be present which when you've got kids it's so, so important. I never want Ethan or Talitha to grow up and look back one day and say, oh, dad was always, he was always doing something else, always elsewhere. He never really focused on it. I'd hate, I'd hate that to be leveled at me. Yeah. I, I've recorded a few podcasts with, um, Sarah Dre, Jamie Dixon, Kerry Walker, ch- children of alcoholics that grown up yeah. and even as young as four or five, they notice the eyes changing, which can be scary or, or short temper and stuff like that. So, it's a really important part as well. People need to consider. So 
what are you 15 months 16 months now well i think it's a sign dave of progress is when you you, you i've got one of those you apps forget. that lots of yeah, people yeah. Have got. i don't couldn't tell you i mean I, I let's have a quick look shall we and i can i can tell you where we're up to i think um well i'm over a year I didn't really want to start talking publicly about it. So like, I, I, I mentioned it a couple of times, but I thought I'm going to get to a year. Because I think when you get past a year, it's not about proving something, but I think people think, oh, look, there you go, 470 Amazing. days. Well done. Hey? So, but oh, I yeah, think on, I, on your phone I, then I had it something said, to say. Yeah, on your phone it said, Dave forgot to send me the Zoom link for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is how the day started. Talk about being present. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Um, so what, what's going on now, mate? What are you involved in? So I, I would describe when you go through losses as, as, as you rebuild life. It's like, um, it's like putting your life, if your life's a jigsaw, it's like putting the pieces back together again. And it's going to be an entirely different jigsaw to the one you had before because we're all irreplaceable but there will be some familiar things like obviously ethan's been the constant um for the last 13 years for me so the last sort of piece of the jigsaw now is just kind of work because i i stepped away from work when everything happened in 2017 because i felt that because we had life insurance in place for both of us so i had the financial ability to do it and i know lots of people don't and it's really, really hard when you're under pressure to go back to work amidst everything you're going through at the time. I was blessed in that that wasn't something I had to worry about for the first year or so. So I took the decision to step away from from Sky, which was really hard because I'd spent so long, you know, applying myself and working hard and trying to get to the top. And I got to the Premier League and in the end, I got a season in a bit and it was gone and it was gutting. But it was a decision I don't regret. Uh, if I was faced with the same decision today, I'd still make the same one. I thought it was really, really important to be as present as I could for Ethan over that first year, at least. Um, but that's that's been the hardest last bit of the jigsaw to kind of put into place, just getting, kind of getting regular work. I do little bits and bobs back at Sky Sports now, and I do some Premier League football for Amazon, but they only have a few games every year. But I do lots of bits and bobs. So largely life is um, uh, just really, really happy. I've got an amazing been very very blessed to find love again and doreen is just an incredible wife and she's an amazing mum. i always knew she'd be a good mum. she's been an incredible stepmom to Ethan, so i knew she'd be a good mum when talif arrived um so i feel really really blessed I, I know lots of people in life who go through stuff you know don't end up in the kind of place that that i have but i feel very very fortunate to be where i am and you know i can't i can't stop saying it enough giving up the booze has been a massive blessing and and what's so encouraging you know i i'll be honest dave i didn't know anything about you before i started this journey and often people who message me and say what well, can you give me any kind of help you know in terms of encouraging me and i say honestly there's this amazing online community of people like people like yourself and i'll drop names in like yourself and just say look follow these people they they are kind of people who drop daily encouragement i might say something every now and again but this is just this wonderful community out there of people who are just saying the same thing. And that is, this is not something to feel bad about or begrudging about or that life's just going to be a bit rubbish because now you don't drink. It's liberating. And look at what they're doing. Look at what they're saying. Look at how all the positives now to this person's life that weren't there before. So, you know, I've just, I've, I've loved this journey over the last 470 days or whatever the app says. And you know, people say, now you have attempted to go back. I say, I can honestly say hand on heart, probably in the last 470 days, maybe three times, 
it's it's past my mind, but it was fleeting. And then I'm thinking of even getting a tattoo done with the date. I stopped just as a proper. Well, uh, yeah, I'm no one. I, I'd encourage. I'm covered in them. I, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the question: Do you ever think about going back? My answer is: Why would I consider going back? Because life was, you know, that whole um, being the best version of yourself. Like your mate Cole says, it's like I was my worst version of myself for 40 years. Why would I want to be that version of myself again when every single day I wake up and straight away I know what I'm doing, I know what I said yesterday, I remember conversations I've had, I know what I've got in the future, I feel healthy, I look forward to exercise, being present all the time. You know, um, things have come up for me that would never have come up before. Why would I want to go back to that life? And that's the simple answer, isn't it? Well, it's like self-harm, isn't it? If you go back to it, all those things you just talked about, all those benefits start getting eroded one by one. And then you become, you revert to the type you were before, which wasn't you, but it was the alcohol type, which is the worst version of yourself. And you're right. Why would, why on earth would you want to go through that? And, you know, I know one or two friends have, have wondered, you know, said, you know, well, if you went through something really hard again, do you think you go back to it? I'm honest enough to say I don't know, but I don't really think I would because I know as well as anybody what that will mean, what that will involve. And I don't ever look in Ethan's eyes or Talitha's eyes or Doreen's eyes in years to come and be the one who wasted all those years and will be the parent that they talk about in years to come as the one who just never could never really relinquish their love of alcohol. Yeah. Well, Simon, thank you so, so much for joining me. I always know when it's been a good episode because I think, do you know what? I feel like I've known you for years. And (laughs) do you know, I'm going to let you into a little secret now. Yeah. And I've realised since we've been on this podcast that I remember you from orders. No. I do. And I'll tell you why, because I was on BT for six years and that was our go-to every day. We used to sneak in, and there was a calf on. I think it was um the fourth floor or wherever yeah, it was. Yeah, not a very good was, one, but no. But I, I I used to be in there every single day, and I That's do hilarious. remember you. Yeah. That's hilarious. I, well, it's so funny because there's a really famous, very good DJ. Well, he's not a DJ; he's a talk show host called James O'Brien on LBC. Oh yeah, who lots of people would have heard of. And I went on his podcast a few years back, and we both had this. Um, moment during the podcast, we realized that both of us had worked at Selfridges because I did a couple of these at Selfridges after university to pay my way while trying to get the TV job. We'd both been there at exactly the same time. So all these meetings can happen on gap years in department stores. I'd love Hilarious. you to send me a picture that. of back in the day there because I, I really, Thank honestly, you. I promise I, I remember you. And, and it's been, it's so weird when you move forward the decades and, I know. you know, Old and it's long gone. I mean, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. The store's long gone. The company's long gone. But um, that's amazing, Dave. Hilarious. Yeah. Thank you so much, mate. I really uh, appreciate you being so honest about this whole interview. And no, pleasure, man. Yourself, Thanks for all you mate. do because you, you encourage a lot of people by doing this stuff. Yeah, thank you, mate. And uh, one day I, I might get to meet you soon. We'll have a couple. Let's of hope time. so. Not in a department store. All right, mate. See you <laughs> Take later, care. mate. Bye, bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. 
for further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon. And you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.